The Accounting Matters Podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. We're your hosts, Adam Olson and Zach Smith, and we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. From Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good afternoon. It is great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, Embark's resident Tampa Market President, and I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's accounting advisory practice leader. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing accounting changes in a two-part series with Nicole Harger, a senior director in Embark's National Quality Group. Adam, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. So before we begin, I'd like to ask each of our guests something that maybe our listeners don't know about them. So Adam, I'll start with you. Tell our listeners something that uh, maybe they don't know about you that you'd like to share. Yeah, so uh, I've spent probably the last, gosh, let me do the math real quickly here, uh, 17 years or so in Dallas, but I'm uh, not a native Texan myself. So I was actually born in Chicago. Uh, So all my family is from up north and we gradually made our way down south. There you go. Great. Nicole? And you stole mine. (laughs) Um, Well, I was going to say I spent eight years living in Minnesota. And I actually, when we moved up there, I was two. So I learned to talk when we were up there. And so I had a very thick northern accent. I love it. Well, hopefully we'll hear some of that during today's discussion, (laughs) if we're lucky. What's your fun fact? I feel like we got to get you in on this discussion as well. Yeah. My fun fact is I... Um, love to bike ride on the weekends and I most Saturday mornings I go out for a long bike ride so awesome define long Uh, 40 to 50 miles that's a long bike ride that sounds sounds long to me (laughs) that's (laughs) 40 50 miles more than I do so there you go well perfect well listen Adam as we need near your end of 2022, we thought it would be helpful for our listeners if we spend some time today talking through changes and accounting principles and accounting errors. You know, Adam, can you first talk a little bit about why this topic would even be relevant to our listeners as I know they're thinking about year-end close? Yeah, so good question there. Like why why does this conversation generally come up around this time of year? I mean, it, it it's not like it's just limited to year end. It's really at any time you're kind of going through a reporting period. But for many companies, um, obviously, annual financial statements is a, a big undertaking. But then kind of going through that process and assessing your your records and making sure everything ties out and everything looks right and you've accounted for all your transactions, a, a lot of times there can be things that come up that warrant the need for a potential change. So it could be, you know, voluntary changes on how you're presenting certain things. There could be certain accounting principles that maybe were effective during the year that you need to apply. Um, Or even like, you know, kind of on the worst case scenario, you uncover some errors that potentially in your prior period financial statements that you now need to think through and figure out how you resolve. Um, So all those things are are things that can come to fruition when you're, you're like going through your annual reporting. And so... Um, it's, it's important to keep in mind that, you know, all these scenarios aren't that uncommon either. Like a lot, you know, they come up pretty frequently and it's just trying to f- understand how you address the accounting when you come across one and how you resolve it, particularly if you're going through an audit as well. 
Okay, so where does some of the guidance exist for these accounting changes and errors? Yeah, so ASC 250 is kind of the, the governing guidance for all accounting changes. Um, you know, it's, it's really used as kind of like an overarching standard. So a lot of people refer to it as like a companion standard to the rest of the accounting standards. So as you're applying any of the other existing accounting principles or standards and you have any potential changes, errors, et cetera, um, you would look to ASC 250 in most cases to figure out how to how to apply that. Okay, and then specifically, let's dig into ASC 250. Okay. What are some of the types of changes that fall under that purview? Yeah, so there's really three broad categories um, of accounting changes that that fall under the scope of the guidance, and so we've kind of alluded to one in, in our opening question. So the you know there's change in accounting principles, which is you know, very common. There's changes in uh, accounting estimates, also very common. And then a third one that sneaks in in certain circumstances is when there's a change in a reporting entity. Those are the three common changes. Um, but I will say the guidance also covers how you deal with accounting errors. So anytime you need to potentially change something and it's the result of an error, um, there's guidance as well in ASC 250 for how you evaluate those errors and, and ultimately correct them if needed. Okay, and we all know change can be hard, and that's where Embark <laughs> is here to help. Sure. Um, and I'm sure that a lot of people, though, are adverse to change, right? It, it's it's uh, difficult from a company perspective yep. to take on um, a lot of these different changes. But when it comes to a change in accounting principle or an estimate, everyone should be prepared to work through it. So let's start first with that change. What qualifies as a change in accounting principle? And what are some of the things that our listeners need to know? Yeah, so a change in accounting principle, you know, like I said, it does happen from time to time. Generally, like when you establish accounting principle, like there's a presumption normally that you aren't gonna change it because you would have applied the most preferable um, accounting principle or what's required. but. Where there are instances where there needs to be a change in accounting principle, it's usually under like two circumstances. You either got new guidance that's effective um, for the reporting entity, so like a new accounting standard or an ASU that requires a certain change in accounting principle, um, or it could be where the entity decides that there's a justified reason to apply a change in accounting principle because it's more preferable. So those are the, the two common situations in which you would typically have a, a change in accounting principles. So it's almost like mandated and then a kind of a voluntary one where you've decided it's more preferable. Okay, so what about changes though that are related to the newly issued codification update? Doesn't the FASB typically provide specific transaction requirements around these updates? They're doing that for sure in more, more recent standards. You see transition guidance that is specific to how you f should transition for that standard. So you know, when there is specific transition guidance in the ASU, you obviously would use that to transition, but in the absence of any specific transition guidance, um, you would for sure then refer back to ASC 250 and use the, the guidance in there for how to apply that change in accounting principle. Now, how does this relate though to companies that are early adopters of the codification update? Yeah, it's really no difference in, um, you know, whether you early adopt or apply as of the effective date. Again, if there is transition guidance, it's going to most likely apply equally for the early adoption. And then in the absence of it, you would still apply the normal kind of uh, change in accounting principle guidance in 250. Okay. Let's switch over to Miss Minnesota over here, Nicole. <laughs> uh, Nicole, can you talk us through some of the examples of situations where a change in account 
county principle would be applied? Yep, um, I'd be happy to. So let's say a company uses the LIFO valuation method for their inventory and for some reason or another, they decide they wanna um, start using the FIFO method. Um, that change between valuation methods would qualify as a change in accounting principle. Um, another scenario would be if a company changes the date at which they perform their annual goodwill impairment um, test under ASC 350. Great, that's helpful. So what if an accounting policy or principle was immaterial in a prior period? If the company adopts that principle in the current period, is it still considered a change in accounting principle? No, so the guidance is actually very clear on this and um, it would not qualify as an accounting change. Um, for example, so let's say a company enters into its first business combination, they would apply a CO to 805 just because it's their first time to do it, that doesn't mean it qualifies as a, an accounting change under ASC 250. So keep in mind, this is different than if an accounting policy or principle should have been previously applied and it wasn't. That's typically an error in which, um, when the accounting principle is considered material. Okay, and so let's just keep on moving down that list. What about a change in accounting estimate? What exactly is a change in the accounting estimate and how would that differ from a change in accounting principle? So a change in accounting estimate is a change that um, has adjusted the carrying amount of an existing asset or liability um, or a change that alters the subsequent accounting for existing or future assets or liabilities. Um, so this type of change is a result of new information. Um, some examples of changes in accounting estimates could be the estimated useful life of a depreciable asset, um, changes in estimated credit losses, changes in estimated liabilities for warranties, um, and a change in estimate for um, obsolete or excess inventory, just to name a few. There can be situations where a change in accounting estimate is a result of a change in accounting principle. So sometimes they can be a little um, intertwined a bit. All right, well, you know I'm gonna ask this. Can you give me an example? <laughs> sure. So let's say a company changes the method of depreciation for their fixed assets. The method change is a result of either a change in estimate of future benefits of using the asset, the pattern of consumption for the benefits, so like obviously the life um, of the asset or information available to the company about the benefits. So in this scenario, the effect of the change in accounting principle, which would be the depreciation method, might be inseparable from the effect of the change in accounting estimate. And because changes of this type are related to um, continuing the process of you know, obtaining additional information, this change would be considered a change in estimate. Okay, now I know a lot of things in the financial statements have reoccurring fair value measurements. Mm -hmm. If a company changes in valuation techniques used to measure those items, how do we think about that? Yeah, so just to level set a little bit, um, generally the valuation technique used um, is consistently applied from period to period. In some circumstances, there could be a, a rationale for a change in the valuation technique. And so when this occurs, that would be considered a change in estimate. 
Okay. Now, Adam, switching back over to you, yep. the accounting treatment, is the accounting treatment the same for a change in accounting estimate and a change in the accounting principle? Or are there differences that we need to be aware of? Yeah, no, there's differences for sure. And that's, you know, Nicole kind of alluded to an example where you could have something that's kind of intertwined between two. It's important to like distinguish those because of how you apply the change. So changes in accounting principle are um, accounted for retrospectively, which basically means you're gonna restate any prior period financial information um, for the change. Any you know cumulative effect of that change that needs to be reflected in the carrying amounts of the assets or liabilities will be reflected, and then in some circumstances you may even have to make an adjustment to like your opening retained earnings. Um, changes in accounting estimates, though, are actually accounted for prospectively, so it's kind of a look going forward change there, um, and so you would reflect any of those changes essentially in the period in which the the change in estimate occurred. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that. You know, Nicole, like I said, mentioned that there are times where you could have things intertwined. So when you have a change in accounting principle, that's also associated with a change in estimate. In those circumstances, it's going to be applied as a change in estimate, so prospectively. Oh. Um, and the only other thing I would add is like when we're, we're talking about changes here, and, it, and it's really the case when you do have voluntary changes in accounting principles is, again, like it's really important that the rationale for why you're changing is preferable and there's a solid case to justify why that change is needed and it's you know because it's something that management is deciding is more useful for the users of the financial statements and is a better representation of the business okay now can a company conclude that determining the retrospective adjustment is not practical after their analysis and review or how does that work yeah, then that's a good question because if you think about like a change in accounting principle, like obviously you kind of have to go back to the earliest period presented and reflect those changes. You know, on paper it might, might sound like that's an exercise that can be done, but there could be situations where it's not practical or it's impossible to do. Um, so you can make that assumption that it's impractical to do that. And really you just want to make sure you've really gone through all the means of saying, you know, you've thought about every reasonable effort to get the information you need to make that change. Um, and in doing so, it's still going to require information that's just not readily available. So management, you know, is unable to substantiate certain, you know, assumptions that need to be necessary to make the change in prior periods or the information isn't objective enough because we only have kind of hindsight information. Um, or there could even be times where like you have a whole new management team and people weren't involved with the company back then and it, you just can't find the information that's necessary. So it's really kind of after, like it's the final straw, like you just can't get to that information and, and you would have to kind of disclose and provide information around why that's not, why you're un un unable, I guess, rather to um, retroactively apply that. Okay. Now you talked about the word preferable when describing changes to the accounting principle. Yep. How does management appropriately justify that a new accounting principle is preferable? Is there a method that they need to be thinking through? How does one go about that? Yeah, there's no like prescribed like checklist. You got to meet all these different conditions or factors. Um, so there's a number of things that you know, you can think through when you're evaluating the preferability of, of a change. Um, so the first thing is one, just to like 
blankly say, is the change you're making supported by any guidance out there? First, obviously looking at authoritative guidance, so a position that the FASB has on something, um, and in the absence of that, maybe non-authoritative guidance. So it could be, you know, other regulatory bodies, you know, AICPA statements, um, technical practice aids that are available, um, different, you know, handouts, textbooks, thought leadership from uh, major accounting players on how things might be applied in practice. Those could also support, you know, justifying that the change is preferable. So the second one is maybe looking at whether or not the change is rational. So like, are you conforming to broader concepts of accounting, things that are widely accepted? Um, is the result of making the change going to provide a more accurate representation of assets and liabilities, the income statement, um, just information that's useful to users of the financial statements? And then, you know, kind of a third area people might look to, especially in certain industries, is that industry practices develop over time. And so there may be certain preferences that are um, kind of embedded in the accounting for certain things that are derived from that industry. And so you might be conforming to what's standard for the industry or what's widely accepted for the industry. And that's what makes it preferable. Okay, now Adam, our listeners are dying to find out, <laughs> is a preferability assessment required when a company has to change the change to accounting principle that the codification presents as preferable? Or is there something else they need to be doing? No, so they don't actually have to um, even think through those criteria when they're making a change from one position to another position that is preferable um, by the authoritative guidance of the FASB. So a common example here um, that comes to mind is like if you think about like a liability um, classified share-based award uh, for non-public companies. So in the guidance itself, what you know, the FASB will refer to that the measurement of that award, the preferable way is kind of a fair value measurement. Um, but they also provide an alternative to non-public companies that they could value the awards using the intrinsic value. So if a company originally decides to use the intrinsic value and then later down the roads decides, no, we wanna to switch to fair value because that fair value change in accounting principle is the more preferable method by the FASB, like they don't have to justify that change. Okay, so helpful there. But what about when a company is either filing a registration statement or considering a change to accounting principles prior to filing a registration statement? How do we need to be thinking about that? That's a good point. So, you know, oftentimes when a company is, you know, obviously transitioning from a private entity to they're getting ready to file their initial registration statement, going to become a, a public business entity, there's could be a number of accounting principles that need to change. And it could be the result of certain elections that were made that are only permissible for private companies that are no longer um, allowable. Um, for them as they become a public company. And so the question arises, like, how do you deal with those, the transition in those accounting principles? And be, the way you think about it here is that because those changes aren't really voluntary, they're almost being mandated as required by uh, US GAAP for public business entities, um, those changes do not have to be evaluated whether or not they're preferable. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is if a company is planning to do an IPO, like down the road, so like, they're like, yeah, we, that's kind of our exit strategy long term. 
we realize today we've made some elections that we know we can't have when we go to you know file our initial registration statement so we're going to go ahead and change our um, accounting for something that we applied a private company alternative to um, in that case because it's not it's not really being mandated by the transition that's required in the registration statement. They're more voluntarily deciding just to change it earlier so that it's ready to go down, you know, two, three years from now. Um, they would have to go through a preferability assessment, which is usually easy to justify because you're essentially applying a more common, common approach that's used by um, public business entities alike. Okay. All right. Over to you, Miss Minnesota. <laughs> Nicole, <laughs> what is an auditor's role in evaluating management's assessment of preferability here? Do they have to weigh in or is this something that they stay out of? Yes, they definitely um, have some responsibilities. Uh, they need to make sure that the newly adopted accounting principle is in accordance with GAAP. And then in addition to the method of adoption, they need to make sure that is also in accordance with GAAP. Obviously, all the related disclosure requirements, and then as well as making sure that the company has justified that the change is preferable, like Adam talked about. So does an audit firm provide an opinion on management's preferability assessment, or do they stay out of that? How do they go about that? Yeah, so for auditors of public companies, yes, but with one exception. Um, so when, a SE, when an SEC registrant makes a voluntary change in accounting principle. Um, it is generally required to include a preferability letter that has been um, issued by their auditors as Exhibit 18 within their first periodic report subsequent to the period in which the change was adopted. Um, the exception here is when um, the voluntary change relates to um, a change in an entity's goodwill impairment and testing date. So I talked about that a little bit earlier. Um, as long as a registrant determines that there wasn't a material impact to changing their goodwill impairment testing date, um, the staff no longer requires a preferability letter. Okay, great. So we've alluded to it a few times in our discussion so far, but I imagine materiality plays a big role when thinking through the reporting and disclosure requirements for changes in an accounting principle. Is that fair to think about it that way? Yes. So um, similar to all standards, ASC 250 is no different um, and it does not need to be applied to immaterial items. So an entity that um, makes a change in accounting principle and they conclude that it's not material to prior periods. Therefore, they would not apply the change on a retrospective basis. Um, they would just apply the new principle to um, assets and liabilities affected by the change. And then they would recognize the cumulative effect of the change as an operating item in the income statement for the period in which the change occurred. Um, the entity would not be allowed to recognize the cumulative effect um, on a separate line item in the income statement, nor would they be able to recognize the cumulative effect in the beginning of the period retaining earnings. Okay, but the people wanna know, what about the disclosure requirements <laughs> for companies who have a change in accounting principle? How do we handle that? Yep, so companies obviously must disclose the nature of, and the reason for the change. So 
why is the um, newly adopted principle preferable, um, as well as the method of change, and then a description of all prior period information that has been retrospectively adjusted, um, and then as well as the effect of the change on the income statement um, and any effect on per share amounts, and then um, the effect on any um, other balance sheet line items and the change in retained earnings as a result of the change. Um, if a company determines that a retrospective application to prior periods is not practicable, then they must disclose the reasons behind that as well as a description of whatever alternative method that was used to report the change. Okay, okay, okay. But how about a change in accounting estimate? So for a change in accounting estimate that affects several future periods, entities are required to disclose the effect of the change um, on the income statement amounts for the current period. So an example of this would be a change, uh, exa an example of a change that would affect several future periods is when we've talked about a couple of times is a change in the service life of depreciable assets. So, um, in contrast, disclosure of the effects is not necessary for estimates made each period in the ordinary course of accounting for items such as uncollectible AR, inventory obsolescence, etc. Um, however, disclosure is required if the effect of such change in estimate is material. Um, when an entity affects a change in estimate by changing an accounting principle, the company must also include the disclosure requirements that are required um, for changes in accounting principles that we previously discussed. If a change in estimate does not have a material effect in the period of change, but is reasonably certain to have a material effect in later periods, a description of that change um, in estimate needs to be disclosed whenever the financial statements for that period of change are presented. So Adam, the last change you noted was around the reporting entity itself. Let's dig in a little bit deeper there. And do you mind explaining that? Yeah, so there's specific guidance that does relate to when there is a change in a reporting entity. And so a lot of times the question is like, what does it mean to have a change in a reporting entity? And so the way you think about it is to actually change the reporting entity means you more or less have to establish a new reporting entity. Um, so for example, if you were to acquire a business that gets consolidated into the reporting entity, just because you acquired that business doesn't mean you necessarily change the reporting entity. It's still the same business and still the same reporting entity. Okay. Um, but in cases where there actually is a new reporting entity, there is guidance for how you then need to think about the, the change there. Okay, so then obviously I need some examples there. Give me an example of what would be a change in the reporting entity. Yeah, so the, a lot of times you'll see changes in reporting entities, particularly when you're dealing with a lot of common control transactions um, and they're you know, preparing a lot of times combined financial statements. So you, know, you could have one instance where you know, company A and company B were combined together as a reporting entity because uh, they have a common parent. And then let's say a couple years down the road, the parent acquires company C and decides now they want to add company C to that combined financial statement. So now you've got a new entity added in those combined financial statements. And so 
that common control transaction would essentially establish a new reporting entity. Okay, so let's dig a little bit more. Talk to me about how the accounting works when there is a change in the reporting entity. Yeah, luckily, it's pretty much aligned with the change in accounting principles. So, you know, it's not like you have to learn something new. So it, in that case, it's, it's more or less you're applying that like retrospective application. So essentially assuming that the new reporting entity has been in effect for all of the prior periods. So in our case of like those common control entities, you would want to assume the effect of um, you know, that, that other company that's been added to the group as of the earliest period, or at least I would say the earliest period presented or in cases where maybe the earliest period presented, not all of those entities were under common control, at least up to the date of when the earliest date is that they were under common control. Um, you know, I'll add also, it's kind of similar to what Nicole got into on other changes. There's obviously disclosure requirements around any of these changes. So again, it's just describing what the changes were, what was the rationale or the reason for the changes. And then similarly, it's like explaining some of the effects on certain financial statement metrics as a result of the change. So, you know, the guidance will refer to like the effects on net income, um, income from operations, other comprehensive income, any kind of per share uh, information. So earnings per share, stuff like that. The effects of this this change in the entity on those those um, items. Okay. You know, Adam, one of the things we haven't touched on are reclassifications in the financials. Are those evaluated under the same guidance as other accounting changes, or do we need to be thinking about those differently? Yeah, so it depends a little bit. I would say generally um, reclassifications actually don't qualify as an accounting change um, and won't generally need some type of like preferability assessment or anything along those natures. I mean, if you think about a lot of reclassifications that might exist, you know, it helps illustrate why that's the case. So like a common one is maybe breaking out different line items on the income statement that were previously collapsed into something. So, you know, you may just decide that you want to separate like selling expenses from SG&A in one year. Um, so now you've got selling separate versus your general and administrative expenses. Um, those types of changes won't necessarily be considered a true a change in accounting principle, which means you don't have to like assess preferability. Um, but one thing you should keep in mind is that although it's not a change in accounting principle, which would say you have to go back and retrospectively change the prior periods, there is a common viewpoint that um, you should recast still those reclassifications um, in the in the prior periods, and that really falls under more general guidance in ASC 205, which is basically saying that the information has been conformed because it's more useful to present it the same way in all periods. Uh, the only other thing I would add about reclassifications is a lot of times things get characterized as a reclassification, but it's actually more than a reclassification. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, you could have an instance where you're reclassifying something because it was wrong. So <laughs> it's actually an error. So you need to really think about it through how we would evaluate errors and get into like the error guidance in 250 versus saying like, well, I know reclassifications we don't have to worry about. We don't have to apply any change in accounting principles. I can just move it around. Um, so you really need to understand like what is driving the change in reclassification or presentation and make sure that it's not truly some type of error that you're actually correcting. 
Yeah, Adam, this has been really helpful. Nicole, let's go ahead and wrap some things up around processes and controls. What are some of the considerations our listeners need to keep in mind as it relates to changes in accounting principles and estimates? Yeah, so um, financial statement risk related to changes in accounting principles or estimates um, should be appropriately mitigated by internal controls. This can be either transaction level or entity level and or entity level um, controls that, that you know, are necessary to help mitigate the risk of material misstatement. So for changes in accounting estimates, it's really important for management to understand, you know, the assumptions, the methods, the data, um, and then all related controls that are used, that are in place to establish these estimates. Um, and then just making sure they understand how changes um, in those assumptions, methods, and data are timely identified by controls. So the key here is timely performance of controls of an estimation process. Okay, well, this has been wonderful. Let's put a pause on this discussion around accounting changes. On our next episode, we'll dive a bit deeper on when accounting changes are to correct accounting errors, including on how to evaluate errors and the method for presenting corrections. I cannot wait for that next discussion. <laughs> I know it will be riveting. Not everything's perfect in accounting, so we always got to think through error evaluation. Absolutely, Adam. <laughs> I love it. Nicole, Adam, thank you so much for your time today. Looking forward to our next discussion and we will uh, talk to you soon. Thanks so much for joining Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.